Okay, well, please turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and I want to read to you verses 14 to 19. Ephesians chapter 3, and reading verses 14 to 19. Those are on page 977, if you're using the church Bible. The plan is to look at these verses this morning and tonight. Then next Lord's Day in the evening, look at the doxology in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, and then we'll have a break from Ephesians, okay? So it's this week and next week, and then we have a, a rather long break from Ephesians. So this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 29, and uh, let us hear God's word. For this reason, Paul writes, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, shall we pause and, and pray for help? Lord, thank you for your word and this opportunity we have to look at it together this morning. We pray for ourselves and for our children in the other room, that they too will know your help. Lord, this is our prayer this morning as we study this prayer, that you will teach us what we can pray for one another. Lord, bless us in our understanding of what really matters, and may our children have that understanding as well. We pray for this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. There is a scene in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, where the Lord Jesus has been praying. We're not told what it is he specifically prayed, what it is he actually said, but we do read in verse 1, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And the impression you get from that verse is that this unknown disciple was somehow inspired by what he saw, or maybe by what he heard of Jesus as he prayed, for, for him then to think to himself, I wish I could pray like that. His question, Lord, teach us to pray, it suggests that what he heard exposed a shallowness in his own prayer life. How Jesus prayed must have revealed a, a depth of intimacy with God and a perception of what one ought to ask for that this disciple knew very little of in his own prayer life. For him to say, Lord, teach us to pray as John had taught his disciples how to pray. And Luke 11 goes on to show the Lord Jesus teaching them to to pray what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But 
it is always a blessing, I believe, to, to read in Scripture how people have prayed for others. Again, like with the Lord Jesus in his great high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. I remember preaching that, so we'll hopefully go back to it another day, but it's beautiful, wonderful prayer to look into the heart of the person praying. For that, for that prayer to be recorded in Scripture, it's a treat, it's a blessing, it's instructive for us uh, to have these prayers recorded for us. And, and here in Ephesians chapter 3, our focus this morning as we look at what Paul prays for, as he thinks of the Christians there in Ephesus, the ones he's ministering to, these are on his mind. Now, how does he pray for them? From what Paul writes here, we get a sense of what burdened him as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We often think of Paul, don't we, as the great missionary preacher. There he was traveling from place to place, stood in synagogues or in marketplaces, and there he was reasoning and debating and preaching the gospel of Jesus, which he certainly did. You read through the book of Acts, and you'll find him do that again and again. But, but here we see how his, his preaching ministry, which we've spent a few weeks looking at, that preaching ministry led him naturally into a praying ministry. Now, of course, he was in prison, so he couldn't preach much. You think, well, there you go. It's not a preaching ministry, therefore. It's a praying ministry. But he was still serving, which I think is an encouragement to some of us who are no longer able to do a sort of upfront ministry. Friends, there's always a praying ministry. There is always a praying ministry that you can get involved in if you feel unable to do other sorts of ministry. And here we see him praying. In the original uh, Greek, verses 14 to 19 are one long sentence. Uh, but we're going to spend a couple of sermons looking through these six verses uh, together. First of all, then, let's look at how Paul introduces what it is he prays for. And you see that in verses 14 and 15. Do you see how he begins? For this reason, he writes. For this reason. That is the same phrase he used to begin the chapter back in verse 1. For this reason. But then he took a detour. Paul does this. It's interesting. We believe Scripture is divinely inspired, that every single word is there because God wanted it there, and yet God is, is writing through the personality of the author, Paul the Apostle. Paul here often, his mind goes sideways to talk about something else. And that's what he's doing here. He begins chapter 3 to take a detour to tell his readers about his ministry. That's what we've been doing the last few weeks how God had called him, how God had revealed to him the message or the mystery which he was now preaching to Gentiles. We see in verse 6 that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He then went on to talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ and how it is that through the church the manifold wisdom of God is revealed and how through Jesus Christ, the church now has access 
to the Father. Paul writes, it's in light of that, in light of all that brilliant blessing every believer has. It's for that reason that Paul then tells us how he's been praying, to whom he has been praying, and according to what he has been praying. There's our three points for this first point. How he's been praying, to whom he's been praying, and according to what he has been praying. How is Paul praying? On his knees. On his knees. Apparently Jews normally stood up when they prayed. Uh, you see that in certain uh, references of Scripture, Mark eleven twenty five, or in the parable that Jesus taught of Luke 18, 11, where the tax collector and the Pharisee are in the temple standing to pray. They usually stood, and yet when someone knelt to pray, it conveyed, a, conveyed something more. It, it conveyed a depth of earnestness that standing up just doesn't convey. For example, in 1 Kings 8, 54, when Solomon is praying at the dedication of the temple, he feels overwhelmed by the glory of the place. He kneels to pray. When the leper comes before the Lord Jesus in Matthew 8, verse 2, and he says, if you are willing, can you heal me? He's kneeling. He's not stood, as it were, presumptuously, but he's on his knees. If you will, will you heal me? When Peter arrives to see the body of Tabitha, and there she is, lay on the bed, cold and still, what does he do? He kneels by her body to pray, Acts 9.40. When Paul is with the elders from Ephesus, they're gathered on the beach in Acts 20, 36, and they're, they've had this conversation. Paul has been teaching them, and as they're about to depart, Paul's about to go and get into the ship again. What do they do? They kneel together and pray. There is something intimate, something humbling about kneeling to pray. It conveys a humility, it conveys a homage to the one who is, who we know is higher than I am, the one who is greater, the one who is mightier than I am. Apparently, the Apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus, he had a nickname. <laughs> he was called Old Camel Knees. I think if anybody was to call me that, I would punch them, I think. Old Camel Knees. Why did they call him that? Because he was often on his knees praying. And his knees became rather calloused from it, hardened from it. This was his posture in his prayer. Of course, Scripture has no rules about the posture of how to pray. We could be walking as we were singing with the kids. We could be standing. We could be kneeling. We could be sitting, we could be lying in bed, for that's all we're able to do. It's not so much how we are externally that matters, but how we are internally. Is our heart bowing down as we kneel to pray? 
or as we stand to pray, or as we sit to pray, as we walk to school, as we ride the bus to work, what is the position of our hearts as we pray to the Lord? Don't want to get hung up on our posture. It's the privilege I want to emphasize here. Paul is imprisoned as he prays, and yet he's still free to reach heaven, and there he is able to kneel and pray. But the greater thing is the access we have to pray. We're reminded here that we are to come humbly before God's throne of grace, however it is, whatever posture we use as we pray. He's on his knees. Secondly, before whom is he praying? We're told it's before the Father, the Father of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to take a wee detour. I want to do a Paul the Apostle this morning. Fifty years ago, I wouldn't have had to have taken this detour. I wouldn't have had to say anything more about that. But sadly, in this present age of confusion, I need to stress the point this morning that though, yes, God is a spirit and therefore he does not have a physical body with X and Y chromosomes, all the evidence, though, of Scripture agrees that God has revealed himself to mankind in a male form, a male form, which means God is not our mother. God is our father. If God had chosen to reveal himself to us in a female form, then the word mother would have been used, but it's not used. The word father is used. In both the Old and the New Testament, it's the masculine pronouns that are used again and again and again in reference to God. He, him, his. There are some places where God is, is uh, likened to, like a, like a metaphor, like a, a mother would care for her child, but he's still the father. In Psalm 91, uh, the care of God is described as like uh, gathering uh, his children under his wings. And some would say that's a very motherly picture, isn't it? But the pronouns are masculine. Always father. In the Gospels, when Jesus refers directly to God, he uses the term father nearly 160 times. In the New Testament, there are nearly 900 verses where the Greek word theos is used for God, and it's masculine. So Scripture presents God to us as our Father, not ever, ever as our mother. Anne Whittakam has said, God clearly isn't a she, as a she can't be a father. This is plain silly, she writes, unbiblical and ridiculous. I think it's the work of a few lunatics. I would agree. <laughs> Anne Whittakin. So Paul bows his knee in prayer before the Father, the Father from whom he told us back in chapter 1, verse 2, that all our blessings, the blessings we have in Christ, flow. This is the Father he told us back back in chapter 2, verse 18, 
chapter 3, verse 12, before whom all believers now have access with confidence through faith in Jesus Christ. Before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We could spend time looking about that every family phrase. It's a bit technical. I don't want to go down there. I think the NIV is helpful. It says, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. In other words, this is the father of those who are now in heaven and the father of those who are still on earth. He's the father of his church triumphant. There they are in heaven and his church still militant here on earth, still serving him as soldiers and so forth here on earth. But it's the whole family of God. Yes, we are separated by death, but still the two parts of this one family of God. And Paul is praying to the Father for the Father's children. And then thirdly, according to what is Paul praying? According to what is Paul measuring the extent to which God will answer his prayer? We see there in verse 16, according to the riches of his glory. The NIV writes, out of his glorious riches. The New Living Translation says, from his glorious unlimited resources. I have to admit I'm one of those people who fumble through the loaves of bread uh, to the supermarket checking the dates on each of the loaves. I'm wanting to find the loaf with the furthest away use by date. Have you reached that age yet? I'm there. Uh, but of course eventually that date will come, won't it? The, uh, the loaf will go stale. Some of us are booking our holidays for later this year, but those holidays will be over in two or three or even four weeks. They're over. Monthly salaries get spent, hair falls out, teeth fall out, clothes wear out, and the heel of your shoe wears down. For this is the kind of world we've become used to living in. Everything has a limit. Everything has a point of no more. But when we come to pray to the Father, that is never the case. When we pray for the Lord to strengthen and encourage us, we're appealing to an infinite being. We're, we're asking God to do or to give something to the measure of His glorious, His limitless resources. We mustn't think of God as like appealing to someone as though it were a, a, a bucket with a hole in it. Rather, in our mind, we're to think of someone as a great reservoir, which is full and overflowing. There is so much. He is so able to answer and to, to give. That's something just of the scale we're using. That's why Paul when he writes to the church at Philippi, he's thanking them for how generous they had been to him. They had partnered with him, and so they had sent him some money. That's all they could give. They, they gave some money to, to help him so he could continue his ministry. And he tells them in Philippians 4.19, 
my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What an encouragement this is to, to remember this when we pray. That our God, our Father, is the source of endless blessing. He's the source of unfathomable ability. He's the source of limitless resource. How able is our Lord to meet our every need? As we sometimes sing, His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known among men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he gives us and gives us and gives us again. We'll look at this more next week, God willing, when we come to the doxology. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask, or imagine. These words, these phrases are meant to encourage us. They're meant to incentivize us to pray big prayers because our God has no limit. He is able to do far more than we ask or imagine. Well, we've now led this foundation for this apostolic prayer. If this is what Paul says he was praying for, this is a great example, a great pattern for us to pray for one another. And there are four specific aspects of blessing that we can use in our prayers for each other. We're to pray for strength, for stability, for personal knowledge, and for fullness. So our second point this morning is the first of those four specific requests. We'll continue these this evening. First of all, strength. Verse 16, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, Paul's already told us back in chapter 1, he was praying for these Christians and verse 19, they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards them. Here he is praying specifically for more power, more of that power, more divine power, more Holy Spirit power. Remember, that's what the Lord Jesus promised his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He told them not to try ministry not to try living the Christian life until that power had come. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. For those disciples to go and do what Christ had commissioned them to do, they, they needed this power. For all the obstacles and the, the, the trials they would face, he knew that they wouldn't be able to face them in their own strength. They needed power. And so he told them to wait till that power came. And you, you read through the Acts of the Apostles what that power looked like. Just off the top of my head, think of Simon Peter. Once he was a bit of a coward. He couldn't, uh, even before a, 
Three people he denied knowing Jesus, but now with the power of God in his life, he was bold before the very people who had condemned Jesus to death. That was the power that Jesus promised. The strength that enables ordinary believers like you and me to keep going, to keep obeying, to keep believing, to keep running the race right to the very end. We can be like the parable of the soils where there's an, uh, an initial spurt of life. But for one reason or another, that life then shrivels. Whether it's because of persecution or hardship or temptation. But the power isn't there to go on, to press on with Christ. Friends, we desperately need this power from the Holy Spirit. This is something we as a church must pray for like Paul did. Earnestly praying for this power for all of God's people here to experience this life transforming, this life enabling power of God. And where does this Holy Spirit, where does he minister? Where does he work this dynamic power? You see at the end of verse 16, in your inner being. Where's that? What's he talking about? Well, it's, it's at the heart of the person, at the very core of our being. Somewhere else, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away yet inwardly in our inner being we are being renewed day by day in other words as we experience the frailty of life as we experience the aging process or illness as we go through trials and all the different difficulties of life and we see the clearest our need of God's grace and power. That is when we might particularly, no, not might, but would particularly need this power. When the date of a hospital appointment finally arrives, we must pray for this power. When the chemotherapy starts, we need this strengthening power. When the painkillers are increased, we need this strengthening power. And when life seems not worth continuing, we need this sustaining power. That's what Paul had found for himself writing from a prison cell. Hard life for Paul, chained to Roman soldiers, but he tells the church at Philippi, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So friends, let's pray for ourselves and for one another to be strengthened with this power from on high. We need this. Kent Hughes writes, we are frail containers pulsating with divine power. But look, there's more here for why we need this power. He writes that, we, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power 
through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, that sounds as though Christ wasn't already in their hearts, as though he wasn't already dwelling in their hearts. In other words, as though they weren't converted. But Paul's already mentioned enough to these people about their inclusion in God's family. They were converted. Back in chapter 2, he, he really stresses that. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. Verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is just different terminology for the same thing. They are converted believers. Verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So it's not a matter of conversion that Paul is praying for here, but rather he is praying for these Christians that they would have a deeper experience of Christ in their lives. Paul's prayer is that Christ would, would dwell, or the Greek conveys a settling down in the hearts of these Christians. For Christ to be so present in their lives to control them and to strengthen them, but again, from within, from inside their hearts. And I think this is important. I think this is crucial that we're reminded that our primary experience of Jesus Christ in our lives must come from within rather than it being something outside of us, something that we experience and we interpret that external pleasant experience as something of God. We have a fan going at the minute and that fan deliberately blows fresh air into the room. Maybe you might feel a tingle down the back of your neck and think, oh, God is in this place. He's not. Well, he is, but it's the fan. It's just the fan. If we base all external experiences on God, we're in trouble because we'll go looking for a church that focuses on what happens in the meeting to create an experience, a, a deeper experience of Jesus in our lives. And it's all external, because once you leave the front door, you leave it all behind. Paul is wanting these people to experience Christ in their life so that out there, once you leave the room, you're living Christ in your life, because he's in your heart. That's what Paul is praying for. God will certainly use external experiences. We, we, we did a study, didn't we, in the means of grace. God has ordained certain practices through which we should expect blessing. The preaching of the Bible is a means of grace. This is an external thing that we should regularly attend praying, evangelizing, things like that, that, that we should expect blessing through. 
Friends, primarily, Paul here is praying for something internal, something within each and every one of us, an internal experience of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. So it's very personal. It is personal. It's, it's intimate. Sometimes it might be hard to explain to others. But he's there. We experience him within us, not only filling our minds with truth, but he is there slowly affecting us, affecting our affections, affecting our character, our personality. Christians change over time. I hope because Christ is present in them, changing them. John MacArthur writes, Paul's teaching here doesn't relate to the fact of Christ's presence in the hearts of believers, but to the quality of his presence. And that's what you and I are called here, encouraged here to pray for one another that God would strengthen his people here with this dynamic power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that we would be mightily enabled to cope with all the various issues of life that each of us face, with Christ himself counseling us and comforting us, Christ himself ministering within us by his Spirit, but assuring us of his love and changing us that experience, that internal enabling experiential presence of God where we know Christ is in us abiding in the hearts of his people as we see his powerful presence worked out in our lives. That sounds like a great prayer to pray. Friends, let's pray such prayers for one another. If this is what Paul prayed, this is certainly something we can pray as we think of one another here in this local church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Scripture. Thank you for the Bible. Lord, thank you for these verses we've looked at this morning. These are indeed instructive as to how we ought to be now as your people. They present to us, as it were, a goal. This is what maturity looks like, being filled with the Holy Spirit and knowing the, the presence of our Savior in our lives day by day, hour by hour. Lord, help us to, to practice this prayer in our own life. As we think of folk in the church here, as we think of those not here this morning because they're unwell, as we think of those who are wandering away from the faith, Lord, prompt us, remind us of these prayers and may the Holy Spirit bring them to mind that we would pray them out from our hearts, that we would be burdened for our brothers and sisters and, and pray such a, an apostolic prayer for them. Lord, lead us then, we pray.
And thank you, Lord, that we pray to one who is without limit, to one that has no boundary. We thank you, God, for all that you are and all that you offer us this morning. We worship you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.